really want to do is we want to do an overview of the Bible. Um, and so we're going to do this over 11 sessions, okay, as we overview the Bible. And um, we're not being endorsed by this guy, we're not being paid by him, but we are using some of his resources again. And it's very accessible, very easy. Um, so I want to encourage you, this book by Phil Moore is the guy who writes the commentaries that we're studying in our groups. He's written this, it's the Bible in 100 pages. I know if you've got a Kindle, it's about three pounds odd to buy. Um, and we're going to be using this, we're using this really in our preaching series as a bit of a, um, um, as a bit of a guide, really. And so he's got 15 chapters, we're doing it in 11, so we're amalgamating a few of them together. Um, but we really felt like, as a leadership team, this was quite a while back, even before we did Galatians, um, that this was something that we wanted to do as a church. Uh, we felt like, actually, in Galatians, we have shown you what it is to um, study a book, which is so vastly important. And we have looked at themes within that book, and we've gone into such depth. But often, when we're studying these books, we need to understand the overall picture to try and pick out what these themes mean, where they are in context. And so we really felt like, actually, as we do this, as we do this overview of the Bible, we're going to be able to place these keys and understand the big themes that run through the Bible. Okay, that's our heart for it. And um, I know there was lots of you, actually, as we, as we got here, and we started asking about, you know, your walk and your faith, that this was a topic on understanding the overview of the Bible that many, many wanted to know more about. And, um, do you know, I think, I think the issue is, when we look at this book here, this one's, a, this one's a big one, isn't it? This is an NIV study Bible, so it has a little bit more in it. But it can be quite daunting. It can be a little bit like having, you know, if you go to the next slide, be a, little, a little bit like having, you know, war and peace on your shelf. And you know that it's a classic. And you know that you should be reading it or Shakespeare's full works. And yet, actually, when you look at it, it is daunting. And you think, where on earth do I start with this thing? How do I actually get involved in this? And just the very size of it. So I'll move these microphones back. Is it a speaker? Do you want to click on that next, next slide? Sorry. Just the very size of it can actually put us off. Um, and it can endure us to the point of not knowing where to start. And um, trying to understand where the Bible fits together is so key. You know, if you want to click on that, is it not working? We're not working. Wow, technically we're having a great morning this morning. Um, I think also sometimes... What if I give you the actual uh, PowerPoint again? Maybe, maybe. Have you got it? I think sometimes this book is also used a bit like a cookbook. Okay? Uh, and so I've seen people using the Bible a little bit like a cookbook. And they use it like a spiritual cookbook. And so they like to pick and mix and concoct great dishes. Um, but it's dishes that they take their fancy at their specific time. Okay? And they're creating dishes that were never actually on the menu. If we actually look at the context of what was being said, sometimes there's a misinterpretation. And so we want to help you 
as a church, that actually we don't end up dipping into this and concocting the things that we want to make happen, but actually we have it in context. And I think sometimes also this book can be seen a little bit like the Bible codes. I don't know if you've read that book. Uh, This is a book that essentially talks about lots of different messages in the Bible, and it's all about deciphering and finding out what's the hidden messages within the Bible. And so I think sometimes people see it as this, if you have special knowledge, or if you have supernatural insight, then you can start to understand this thing. But we do not believe that. We believe that it is inspired by God. Okay, And he's made it accessible to all through his spirit, if we ask him. And there are clear key themes that will help us to understand the Bible and understand its key themes. And um, it's a little bit like on our family holidays when I was little, we loved doing jigsaws. Okay, and we'd get these, my mum's obsessed still with jigsaws. And you go there and she's always got something on the go, but it's always some thousand piece or something. And um, when you actually look at one piece by itself, it's difficult. You look at it, you think, well, I think that's probably the sky or something like that. It's difficult to know where it fits in the jigsaw. It's only actually when we have created and understand the full big picture or we see the front cover of the box and we see what it looks like that we start to understand where these pieces fit together. And um, can someone just turn that urn off? Sorry, otherwise it'll it'll overboil. And so what we want to do in this series, these 11 weeks, they were all points that have been made. What we want to do in this series is we want to help you as a church try and use some just very simple tools so that when you look at the Bible, and I'm, I'm talking about any passage, any book, any chapter, you can actually start to discern what is going on, understanding the context, understanding what is going on, how that fits into God's big picture and his big plan. And I want to say to you, this series is going to be very different. I have to be honest, I struggled to prepare this preach simply because when we've been going through Galatians, it's been very exegetical. And we've looked at it in depth, and now we're looking at something in in such breadth, okay? And so actually, we're not going to have those, well, we're going to have truth, okay? And it's still deep, but we're going to be skimming the surface, trying to help you see the overarching themes. And we're praying and hoping that actually as you see these, the Bible will be opened up in your personal times, as you study it, as you go away and you look at what we've been saying on this week, Um, and you start to study it yourselves, then this book will open up. So, what am I looking at? Uh, Just a quick quick overview of the Bible then. It's made up of 66 books. This guy was obviously mentioning some of the things about it. Uh, There's about 44 writers um, throughout the Bible. And it was done over about anywhere between 1,600 and 2,000 years. And it's split into... Two Testaments, the Old and the New. And there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And they'll have originally been written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And the first five books were written essentially by Moses. That's the idea. And to the Jewish people, they would have been known as the Torah or the law. It's the Pentateuch. And, um, you know, the historical period of Genesis is massive. Uh, When we look at a timeline, it's almost... Well, Genesis alone as a book spans two and a half thousand years. Okay, I want to just give out, Laura, can you give out this handout? 
what I've done is I have given you a timeline of the Bible to help you to understand an overview of where these books fit into a timeline. Don't just say on this timeline and you'll see it. This is done from a creational perspective. It's done on, there are lots of theories about the Big Bang, about creation, about how it was created, about the time involved. This is done on a seven day. So you'll see from the very beginning, it's a literal seven day that this guy is counting from. Um, we're not going to, as I say, this is, this is overarching themes. I'm not going to go into you know, what I think this is or, or, or what it's not. But there are some different theories out there. As the Bible talks about days, these seven days that God uses, six days to create and the seventh of rest. Um, are they a literal day? Is it a time period? Some would suggest it's a thousand, each day is a thousand years because of different points in Scripture. And some people believe in what's called a gap theory where God created things and then there was a, a gap. And I've just given you a timeline based on a literal seven day to help you understand where these books fit in. And you'll see there's some names on there, there's some helpful things. I've laminated them because I want you to take them away and I want you to stick them on your walls and study them. Okay, Whether that's maybe on your fridge so you can walk past it and have a look at it. But it just helps you to understand, you know, you see the context of Genesis, which spans two and a half thousand years. It's phenomenal. And you can see that the New Testament, you've got AD 1 to AD 100. It goes slightly beyond that. You know, you've got, you've got New Testament all within that period. Um, but it shows you different people. It shows you the ages. And obviously the ages that people lived in the beginning were hundreds and hundreds of years. And as time went on and we hit sort of... Um, different parts. God changes the lifespan of, of men and women on the earth. Um, but this hopefully will be a helpful resource for you to understand where some of this fits together. Okay, um, And I want to suggest that you bring it with you on a Sunday, uh, because as people preach uh, from the overview, this will help you to understand the context, and some of the key characters are in this. Okay. So the Bible is made up of Lots of different types of writing. It's mainly narrative, but we also have teachings. We have poetic imagery. We have wisdom literature. Uh, there are lots of different types of writings within the Bible. But we have to understand, Hebrews tells us that it's inspired by God. So God used uh, 44 people to write this. And yet it's him speaking through the Holy Spirit to bring his manifold wisdom to mankind. And so I want to start, really, I am covering Genesis not the whole of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 12, okay, um, which is pretty big, to be totally honest. It goes right the way up to Abraham. So you'll see on there, we're sort of, we're hitting, we're hitting a long period. Um, and I just want to start by talking through Genesis um, 1 to 12. Um, I'm not going to open the Bible to read it. There'd be a lot to read if we actually did that. I just want to talk it through as a story so you can get your heads around some of the key uh, stories in the events of this Genesis 1 to 12. So, in the beginning, that's how the Bible starts. It says God takes this dark, watery chaos and he speaks creation into being. And he says six times that what he created is good. And on the seventh time, he creates man and he says it is very good. And he says he's made us in his image. 
he gives authority to Adam. And he commissions him to rule over the earth and to start by naming all of the animals. And God sets God, God sets Adam in his garden of Eden. Where it's quite easy for him. There's beautiful trees and there's plants uh, to feed on. And God realizes that Adam actually needs a helper, a companion. So he puts Adam to sleep and he takes one of his ribs and he makes, whoa, man, woman. And God has relationship with Adam. So they walk in the garden together regularly, chatting to each other. And it's here that God tells Adam that he has total freedom to eat of everything in the garden apart from one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden. One day, as time goes on, both Adam and Eve are in the garden when they're told by a serpent who appears from nowhere. And he starts speaking to them, asking whether or not God has really told them not to eat of the tree. And questioning whether or not what God has said about them dying will truly happen. We find out, and we know this, don't we, that the temptation for Adam and Eve was too much. The fruit looked good, it says. And the desire to have wisdom was too much to bear. And it was this point here, as they ate the fruit, as they disobeyed God, that sin entered humanity. They realized at this point immediately that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. As God comes and he walks through the garden, he's calling for them, but they're nowhere to be seen. They're hiding because they feel ashamed because they can see their nakedness. The Lord obviously realizes as he chats to them that they have eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they've disobeyed him. And so he starts firstly by cursing the serpent who tempted them, and then Eve, and then Adam. God himself then kills an animal and creates garments for them to clothe themselves in. And then he banishes them from the Garden of Eden forever, banishing all mankind forever from his garden. Now, unfortunately, Up till chapter 12, it's pretty much the same spiral of downfall of mankind, of the mess of sin, and mankind trying to be their own savior, and trusting and not trusting or depending on their creator. We see that Adam and Eve have children, and they have Cain and Abel. And because of the sacrifice that God made for them as he clothed them with this um, animal's hide, Adam and Eve teach their kids that this is how sin must be forgiven, through a sacrifice, through offering. And Cain presents an offering to God, and Abel does also. But God makes it clear to Cain that his offering is not an offering 
that he's pleased with. And yet Abel's, he is pleased with. Cain gets angry and jealous. He decides to take things into his own hands and he kills his brother. God again comes walking, comes asking for Cain. Cain, where are you? Where's your brother? And surprise, surprise, he's disobeyed God and he's gone and killed his brother. And so God curses Cain. And this is where the dynasty of Cain starts. And this dynasty that he has, this line, this generation, is known as the sons of man. And after a few of these generations, we're introduced to this character, to Lamech, who we find out has become even more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. It says this, which is all we find out about Lamech. Says, um, he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. But Adam and Eve have another son, and they name him Seth. And his dynasty is known as the sons of God. Because they begin to call on the name of the Lord. And we're told that Enoch, coming through this line, walked faithful to God, and that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among people of his time, and that he walked faithfully with God. And then in chapter 6, we see something dramatic happen again. We see that Seth's line, the sons of God, the ones who have been calling on the name of God, start marrying into the line of Cain. And they stop worshipping God. God is grieved. And he's heartbroken at the pure corruption and the violence that has inhabited the earth. And he decides he needs to wash it clean and start again. And so he chooses Noah and he asks him to build an ark where he'll take his family with two of every animal on board as a mighty flood covers the earth for 40 days, just as the waters covered the sea. The flood subsides, and God once again comes, and he commissions Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Unfortunately, although God has washed clean the earth with the flood, man's heart is still sinful. And we see an incident happen in a tent with Noah and his sons, and it's a bit unpleasant. But they multiply in number, and we reach chapter 11. And we see that all of the descendants of Noah, these generations, have migrated together, and they decide together to build a great city and a tower that will make them famous and will keep them together. They have this new creation, the brick. And God sees their plans, and he sees that they're not good. And he comes to see this mighty tower. And God purposely confuses their language and disperses them from building a city. 
That is Genesis 1 through 11. We have some key stories there. Creation, the fall. We've got Cain and Abel. We've got uh, Noah. And we have the Tower of Babel. Okay? Key stories here. And what we want to do is we want to help you as we go through this series, we're going to be coming back to the same themes. We want you to be able to look at any passage and we want you to use these keys. And we've come up with an acronym. And the acronym is ASK. It's not ASK, SEEK, KNOCK, just in case you're about to go there with it. Uh, This was Mr. Ashworth who came with this clever acronym. But we believe that These three key themes, it's not to say there aren't other themes, there are lots of themes running through the Bible, but we believe that these three key themes can be found in any passage that you're looking, okay? So, we firstly believe it is, Neil, an autobiography, okay? What is God saying about himself? This is what the Bible is, first and foremost, okay? It is a revelation. Although it says a lot to us about mankind, about how to live, we've got wisdom literature, we've got uh, letters, obviously, from Paul explaining to the church about how we are to uh, behave. Primarily, the Bible, and fundamentally, is about him. This is God's story, okay? It's him showing us his nature, his person, his actions. So where do we get to know God? It's right here in the Bible. This is his autobiography. He is the chief character in this drama that unfolds. Do you know, we are forever getting confused into thinking that Scripture is mainly about us, mainly about what we're supposed to do, rather than a picture of who God is. Do you know, when we meet people and we get to know them, we start telling our story. We don't, we don't introduce ourselves by saying, Hi, I'm five foot ten, away this amount. It's not stats, it's a story of who we are. Okay? And um, I love this quote God acts in and through history. He is not simply the grand professor at the head of the class who stands and lectures. He is integrally involved in human history, serving not only the author of the story of redemption, but also as a genuine character in the story. God comes. He is the chief character. He comes into this story. He's come into our lives personally. Why is this so important to get our heads around? The Bible, this is, if you want to understand your creator, the one who knit you together, the one who knows you, then he's right here. And he's come and he's got involved. He doesn't just narrate it. He comes to mankind. Secondly, the Bible is a story of love. S, story of love. So we have to ask, what is going on in his big love story of redemption? Okay? We were created in love by God. We were designed for a unique relationship with him. Perfect. And yet, as I've encountered... We see right in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And so we see a love story where our relationship with our creator has been broken by sin. 
But you know, God persists with us. He loves us. He's never going to leave us. And he's chosen his people to be a beacon. And he shows so much love and grace throughout the many trials that we see unfold in these pages. Fundamentally, we see that mankind cannot save themselves no matter what they do. The consequence of sin requires God to save his people. And God himself, as we know, Jesus incarnate, comes to save mankind from his sin and from his foolishness. And he establishes the church as his vehicle to reach the world with this message. And he tells us that he will return. The Bible is one big love story. Love that is unconditional. He himself is love. He's the hero. He's the saviour. And we are the apple of his eye. We are the one he comes to save. We're the one who needs rescuing. Rescuing from ourselves, essentially. Thirdly, K, King Jesus. Do you see how he's done that? He's clever. What do we learn about Jesus? Okay, the third tool we want. What do we learn about King Jesus in this passage? Now, we know from the New Testament that we start with the life of Jesus as the Gospels go through and they look at Jesus' life. And we see the letters that are written to the churches in response to um, men and women who know and have met Jesus. But the Old Testament, it's 39 books. And I want to tell you that all of these books point to Jesus. Okay? How do they point to Jesus? Because he hasn't come to earth quite yet. But they do. I want to say to you, there are three ways that when we look at passages, we need to look at them and say, where do they point to Jesus? There's the prophetic, okay? So often there's prophecy. There's over 800 prophecies in the Old Testament. So we have to look at prophecy and say, is this prophecy pointing to Jesus? Has it been fulfilled by Jesus? There's patterns in the Old Testament. Patterns of people. Okay, when we look at different people in the Bible, we see that there's a pattern, a lot of similarities that point to Jesus Christ. And there's presence. Okay, we actually see the very presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is there in the beginning. He is not created. He is the creator. So we need to look at those three things, prophecy, pattern, and presence. Three Ps, prophecy, pattern, and presence. When we're looking at where is Jesus in this? Everything else that goes on in the Bible builds on these three blocks. Okay? That's why we want to make it simple. That's why we want to help you to understand as we go through this, what am I looking for in this passage? What's it all about? It's his story. It's a story of love. And it all points to Jesus. Okay? So we're going to do that right now. 
Um, and I'm going to look at creation and fall. And this is just to help you so that we can understand, okay, how do I do this? How do I put this into practice, this ask? So, it's an autobiography. What is God saying about himself in the creation accounts and in the fall? Well, we know that in the beginning, okay, that's where the Bible starts, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The Bible doesn't try to convince us of God's existence. It doesn't feel like it has to. It simply informs us from the very beginning that he is the creator. He is the narrator. He is the boss of the entire planet, the solar system, and the cosmos. God is not created, but he is the creator of all things. It's very, very important. Actually, these first 11 chapters all focus on God's with the world. Chapters 12 to 50 that I know Matt's going to cover next time is about Abraham and how God is going to bring his promises through one family. Okay? So we have a clear cut-off point from 1 to 11. And when we see what God has created, we start to understand and we start to grasp how big he really is. We start to realize that there are, and this is through science, just in the last how many years, that there are literally billions of planets. And he doesn't work up a sweat. He says, it says he just speaks them into being. Out of nothing. He's not using a substance. Oh, I'll take the soil. No, he speaks them out of nothing into being. Creation tells us about this almighty, powerful God. Who is there like him? There's no one like him. Who can take nothing and make something? Only him. Creation tells us so much about God. As we even look at, obviously, the big picture of the planets, the solar systems, the fact that we just keep seeing more and more as science goes forward, we start to see that the expanse of what he's created is massive. But then we look at our own human bodies. And we've heard of cells. And did you know there are over 100 million cells in the human eye alone? You know, God is amazing, isn't he? He's not just interested in size. He's interested in the very details of life. And we see from creation that he is a God who loves diversity as we see all the different creatures that he makes. And he creates and he calls them good. And as I said, he creates man and he calls him very good. I want to say that if what a person produces characterizes his inner self, then we can truly say that God is good. God is good because he does good things. He sees his work that he's produced. And it's absolutely amazing. It's spectacular. It's wonderful. He loves man. 
and he's excited about his creation. He gets excited. I want to say that God isn't insecure. Often, as we look at who God is, we offset it against where we see our, our own insecurities, our own selves. Why am I saying God's not insecure? Well, here he is, the God of creation, and we see him in this creation account as he gives man authority. He gives Adam authority to rule. To rule over things. To name animals. He even names Eve. Another thing we see from creation is that he's interested in order. Okay? Everything he makes has order. Do you see the days? There's an order to the way that he's doing it. There's an order in the fact that he asks Adam to rule over. Out of chaos, he brings order. He describes the way that man is to rule. And in this perfect creation, he starts his perfected order. He communicates with his creation, doesn't he? And please, I want you to notice the first thing that he says to Adam. It's not, do not eat of the tree. We so often think that's God's words to Adam. It's not, it's a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is perfectly satisfied at the whole of his creation. Do you know, often when we do something, when I'm preparing a preach, we're never ever satisfied with how it's done on the prep. When we're doing our DIY, we're never satisfied with how it actually looks. Even when we get somebody else in. You know, it's just this bit here could have... God's not like that. He was totally satisfied that his creation... His creation was good. And he used the seventh day to rest. God knew everything was complete. There was nothing lacking in his creation. The world and his redemption plan was set in motion. Do you know, God didn't need to rest but he planned mankind to start from a, a place of rest and then work from this place of rest, not the other way around. We find out that God has made us in his image. But the one thing he says that is bad is for man to be alone. So he creates Eve. Do you know, God, he knows us. He knows what we need and he loves to provide for our needs. He's interested in how we feel and what we need. That's the gods that we serve. He's not aloof. 
He's not distant. He loves relationship. And he walks in the garden with Adam, and they chat together on regular occasions. I want to say there is intimacy and love going on right here in this creation story. As we look at his story, this is who he is. This is God, the Father. He communicates with his creation. He loves us. You know, if there's ever part of the Bible where we can can keep going and keep going, it's these chapters on his story. But I won't. I'm just giving you a taster, an overview of that A. So as you look at your passages, as you look at the Bible, that's the sort of thing you're looking for. Where is God? What is this story here? What is he doing? Story of love. Do you know, by the third chapter of Genesis, we obviously see the fall of mankind. They disobey God, and everything changes. Okay, the relationship between God and man is changed. The curse that God gives to Adam and Eve shows us that his original perfect order of things has been distorted. And this is so important to grasp because it affects everything from now on in. The curse for Eve, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This isn't the way that God planned things. Okay, His perfect creation has been distorted by man's sin. And we see here in the curse, the consequence of sin, some of, the, some of the consequences. We see here that Eve's desire for her husband, Eve will have desire for her husband, and he will rule over her. This isn't a godly desire that we're talking about between man and wife in a marriage. Okay, This isn't a, oh great, Eve's always going to fancy her husband. And Adam's always going to lead her well. That isn't this curse. Actually, this curse is that Eve will desire to be in Adam's role. She will desire to rule. It's an ungodly and unhealthy way to live. And actually, he goes on to say that he will rule over you. There's something here that is wrong as well. This ruling that Adam will take over Eve is almost an aggressive ruling over Almost that, an oppression of Eve. So sin has distorted not only the relationship between Adam and Eve and God, it distorts the relationship between each other, between man and wife, between men and women, between mankind. And we see here some of the consequences of the curse on Eve because she ate of the fruit. For Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. The curse on Adam here, the consequence of sin, is that life is going to become hard. 
He's going to be exiled from the garden to toil on the same soil he was created from. Creation, its very self, not just the relationships between man and woman, creation, nature, has been distorted through sin. No longer will the land produce like it did in this beautiful Garden of Eden. But nature will become dangerous to mankind. The land will be tough. It will be hard work for Adam to live, to eat. And you know, the created order, even with regards to man and Satan, has changed. God gave Adam authority to rule over all the creatures. And yet we have Satan here who has come in and usurped that. He's distorted it. And so no longer will man rule over all created things because he surrendered himself to Satan in the garden. And he's put himself under his dominion of death. So this distortion that has happened is happening between relationships, between man's rule, how God intended it to be, and in nature itself. But you know, God loves his creation. And he loves Adam and Eve. And so we see that he doesn't leave them and abandon them, even though there's actually a consequence to sin. In fact, what do we see him do first? He comes walking through the garden, in their hiding. We see God seeking out sinners. He's aware of what they've done. He knows they're hiding. But he's seeking them out. He comes looking for them. He enters the garden and he calls for them. And after he proclaims the curse over them, his next act is one of extreme love. It's part of this love story. He's loving and gracious, seeking them out. But then he goes and he commits, he, <clears throat> he sees that they're ashamed, that they understand their nakedness, and that they've tried to cover the shame themselves by sewing fig leaves together, but actually they're still ashamed and naked. And they realize actually their shame hasn't gone away when they've tried to cover it themselves. So what does God do? He sacrifices an, an innocent animal. This is the first death in the Garden of Eden. And he covers their nakedness with clothing made from the hide of the world's first blood sacrifice. He commits to them as he himself covers their shame. They realize they can't save themselves. Only God can save them from their sin and their shame. Do you know, God still gives Adam such joy. I don't know if you've realized this and hope. 
as God says that Eve will have great pain in childbirth. Why does that give Adam joy and hope? Do you know why? Because actually what God said would happen is he said that they would surely die. And God should kill them right there and then. He actually says that she will have great birth in great pain in childbirth. And he goes on to prophesy to the serpents about the seed of Eve. And for Adam, he takes God's promise. She'll have great pain in childbirth. And he calls her Eve, the living one, the mother of the living. Because he realizes that she's going to have children. That this isn't the end. That God's grace and mercy is being shown even in the curse. And as I said, he promises that her very offspring, there shall come a saviour. Do you know, we have a God who is showing immense grace and love to his created beings. He's determined to fix their mistakes from the very outset. And so we start this amazing love story as God shows he is committed to his people. It's a story of love. Finally, King Jesus. Okay, where do we learn about Jesus in this passage? You know, there's loads of places that we could look at. I want to start with prophecy. Genesis 3.15. If you've got your Bibles, open it up there. So I'll just read that out. Genesis 3.15, anyone? So where do we see King Jesus? Actually, what we have here is God prophesying about what is to come. Right at the beginning, he is prophesying about thousands of years later about actually the curse to the serpent, to Satan. Okay, Um, And it's about his defeat, his ultimate defeat of Satan. And it says he will bruise his head, even though the serpent shall bruise his heel. So the heel... What's, what's going on here in this prophecy? Um, we've got a few things going on. Okay, um, The heel. What is this about? The serpent bruising the heel. Essentially, there's something here about the serpents on the ground. What's within the serpent's reach? It's actually the heel. Jesus, in taking on humanity, in becoming incarnate, and in becoming man, brought himself near to Satan's domain so that Satan could strike him. And we see Satan striking him on the cross. Okay? So actually, in God's rescue plan, he already knows that the serpent is actually going to bruise his heel. It's going to hurt Jesus. Secondly, the prophecy actually gives us a hint of the virgin birth. Because it talks about the seed of Eve. Now, we know that the seed goes down the male line. We know that sin is being passed down the male line, and yet God refers to it as Eve. 
Okay, so we get our first hint of this virgin birth. Okay, um, and second, and and thirdly, he shall bruise your head. Um, Christ conquered Satan on the cross. The head strike is the victory blow. It's the final defeat. And um, God knew that Christ's sacrifice was going to pay once and for all uh, for the defeat of Satan, for what he's done. And so we have this prophetic word here, Genesis 3.15, pointing to Jesus and what he is already going to come and do. This has actually been called the Proto-Evangelum. It's the first gospel in the Bible. Um, there's all sorts of different prophecies going on in this. Um, we have that sacrifice that we looked at, okay, as God sacrificed. Again, that shows how God is going to sacrifice Jesus and he is going to cover our sin and shame. So when we're looking at King Jesus there, we're looking at the prophetic, we're seeing there's a pattern here. We see it in the ark as God uses the ark to encompass and save Adam from the sea. Secondly, this pattern, how is Adam a pattern of the Messiah? I'll try and be quick here. Um, We know that they're both made in the image of God. They both ruled over all of creation. Okay? Um, And they were both made of supernatural resources, okay? So Adam was made from the dust of the earth. And then Eve was made, obviously, through the rib of man. And um, God, we know, was made of supernatural um, resources as well. We know that Adam's side was pierced in a deep sleep to have his wife made for him from his own body. And we know that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, the bride of Christ. Okay? So we could say that is also a pattern looking at it. And we also know that as legal rulers, their actions had permanent and pervasive consequences for all under each other's rule. So as Adam sinned, the whole of mankind fell under the curse of sin. As Jesus broke the curse of death, as he conquered mankind in him, conquered and rose victorious. So we have patterns here. There's lots of patterns of different people going on. You're going to see them as we go through. You know, we've got Melchizedek, we've got Abraham, we've got Joseph. All patterns of Jesus. And thirdly, there's presence. Okay? And just one thing. There's there's many in these first 11 chapters. But in God's creation, let let us make man in our image. We have reference there to the Trinity. That actually from the very beginning, we have God the Father... God the Son and God the Spirit, okay, as he hovers over the earth. Um, So we have his very presence in Scripture here. That is our ask, that is our acronym, okay? And so as we study and we go through, you're going to see that coming out again and again and again. This is just a foretaster, okay, of what's going to happen. And we're going to be covering some even wider wider, um, areas of Scripture. Um, I just wanted to bring one thing, it will take two minutes, I know, I know time-wise we are, we are running a bit, bit late, but it's just one thing on, on Babel, okay? Um, we have this event, and often we, we obviously know and know her, but we're a bit confused often with the Tower of Babel. What's going on there? Does God not like buildings? Is he unimpressed there? And Matt's going to be um, 
teaching on family next week. He's going to be looking at Abraham and his family and how God blesses mankind through one family. But essentially with Babel, what happens is they build, I don't know if you know this, but they build a tower and they have a city. And the tower is for their fame and the city is to avoid being dispersed, it says, over the whole face of the earth. And um, so they're making a few mistakes. They want to make a name for themselves instead of for Yahweh. So there's idolatry going on there. And secondly, they're disobeying the original commission that God has given man. He gave it to Adam. He gave it to Noah as he stepped off the boat to go forth and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. So he made us in his image to spread out everywhere to bring his glory. And yet man chose his name instead of God's. And he chose security instead of mission. And Yahweh comes down to visit the tower, and unsurprisingly, the creator of Everest is unimpressed. And there's three ways that this changes as we look at the story of Abraham. And Matt's going to be teaching on him. But Abraham, how does God commission Abraham? He commissions him by firstly asking him to leave the land he's in, rather than stay in the city that he's in. All the nations, he says, who have been separated from one another, will be blessed through him. And rather than making a name for himself, Abraham will have his, ma- his name made great by Yahweh. Do you see how God changes the order? He's bringing it back into line with his plans and his purposes. He wants a people who are on mission. He wants a people who make his name great. Um, and a people um, who will bless the nations not just look at blessing themselves. Great.